Tonight we're going to continue our series that we started last week on uh, First and Second Thessalonians. Last week we did all introductory material, and uh, I know it's not exciting for a lot of people, but I'm a geek, so I really enjoy getting into the history and that sort of thing. Tonight we're actually going to begin uh, looking at it verse by verse and looking at the scripture and talking about how it applies to our lives. But you know, when you get into the epistles, it's very, very tempting to want to get in, into the heart of the of the of Paul's letter, whatever it is. In this case, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Um, and it's easy to read the first part, that, that greeting and the salutations and all those sort of things. It's easy to sort of skim over that. And, and, but if we did that, often we would be missing some valuable insights into, into the church. Uh, the truth is, Paul, in his hands, everything, even the address on the envelope, so to speak, becomes an opportunity to remind his readers of the work of God in their lives. Because Paul used the common form that they used to write letters back in those days. They would, uh, it would, the letter would start off with, with uh, identifying the sender, then identifying the recipient, and then there would be a short greeting. And Paul, he took what was normal and, and the normal words, and then he substituted little things like, like uh, uh, th there would always be a, a nice greeting, but he would change it to where it, it specifically talked about the grace of God instead. And, and so knowing that, it's, it's important for us to not just skim over the, any part of it, but to look even at the introduction, introduction the greeting is more accurately uh, what it is. But um, when we get into the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians in particular, the, the feel of this letter is that of a reassured voice of a parent on the end of a phone when they're finally able to speak to a son or a daughter who's been missing in a city recently struck by an earthquake or some other, other disaster. And it, it shows the mind of a person who's tried to remain confident that everything was okay, yet battled doubts. And that's what Paul was dealing with. You remember last week we talked about how he just didn't have much time there in Thessalonica and he had to leave and he was worried whether they were going to hold, hold firm to, to their faith. And so he was waiting on, you know, on pins and needles, waiting, waiting with bated breath to, to find out if they were going to, if they were doing okay. And, and then when Paul gets the report from Timothy about how well they're doing, Paul just gushes with emotion as he celebrates the good news about the church in Thessalonica. And the, the greeting at the beginning of First Thessalonians is, is similar to other greetings that Paul used in other epistles. It, it identifies the senders and the recipients and it conveys an expression of goodwill or some sort of message like that. However, this greeting is unique in some interesting and important ways and there are some important lessons for us to learn even in, in something as simple as a greeting. And I also want to say this, I mentioned it last week, but First uh, Thessalonians is, is uh, very, very likely the earliest letter that Paul ever wrote. This is the first one. So this is very early in church history. Uh, and so some of the things that he wrote, uh, it's, it's interesting because it tells us a little bit about the church at large during, during that time. We'll get into a little bit of that tonight. But uh, let's read verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, we'll, we'll begin. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, already from the very beginning, uh, there, there's something a little different here than most of the other letters, because for reasons that we can only guess at, First and Second Thessalonians are the only letters in which Paul does not characterize himself or his colleagues in some way. For example, uh, elsewhere, Paul, when he would identify himself as the sender, he would also describe himself. And so uh, in Romans and Philippians and Titus, he said, Paul, a servant of God, or, or, or in some places, a bond servant or a slave of, of, of Jesus Christ. And other places, he, he called himself Paul, an apostle. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And then he even identified himself as a prisoner in Philemon. And then whenever he did include colleagues in the, in the prescript with him, 
Um, uh, usually when he did, like in, in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all those places he mentions Timothy, um, and, and then he mentions somebody named Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians, and they're either designated as a brother or a servant. But here, he doesn't do any of that. Now, I, I, I really think it's very possibly just simply because of the fact that this is the first letter he wrote. And that later he started filling things in uh, as he realized what was, how, what was important because maybe later on there are other people who would say, well, this letter's from Paul, but maybe there's other Pauls. Which Paul is it? And so maybe he started getting a little more detailed. And, and then there are other, other things that are a little different. I, I might get into this a little bit, but for example, this is the only letter that he addresses to the church of, of the Thessalonians, for example. He doesn't say it right to the church of Corinth or any of those. What he does, he usually, uh, and I will get into the, mention this, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but he usually would, would say to the believers or to, you know, in the region of or in Corinth, but what he would say later on, he would say to uh, those in the church of God in Corinth or something like that, referring to all the believers in the city. Um, and I, and it's very, there's a very good chance the reason he did it there is because later, in later letters, he may have started realizing, this sounds like the church belongs to the Thessalonians, but the church doesn't belong to them, it belongs to God. And so maybe it's just a little bit later, as he, as he began writing other letters, that some of these issues came up, and, and that he began to clarify a little bit more. But he mentions Silas and Timothy in the first verse. The name of the second person uh, is actually, in the, in the actual letter, it was Silvanus, not Silas. Uh, but Paul mentions it. But he mentions him elsewhere. He is the same person as the Silas that you read about in other places. He's mentioned in Acts, and, and he's probably the same person mentioned in 1 Peter, for Acts 15. This is at, at, at when... Uh, the, the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem are trying to decide whether or not Gentiles have to follow Jewish law. Do they have to be circumcised? All of these things. And they made their decision. And then it says, and thankfully, as a Gentile man, they said, no, you don't have to. Uh, but then it says this in Acts 15, 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, that's the same man, Silvanus or Silas, men who were leaders among the brothers or the believers. First Peter 5.12, he says, Paul writes, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So we know who, who that is. Um, now, why does he have two different names? Well, it's, it, it's possible that he did have two names, like Paul was also Saul. Uh, and that's not that uncommon. Uh, Peter was also Cephas. Uh, it, it, you know, and so S Silvanus and Silas could be just Latin and Greek forms of a Jewish name, or, or it could be uh, just that, that he went by two different names. Uh, Acts tells us that Silas was a Jerusalem prophet who was delegated with, along with Judas Barabbas, or excuse me, Barsabbas, to deliver the results of the Jerusalem Council to the Church of Antioch. And then after Paul separated from, from uh, Barnabas, and we went over this last week, so I'm not going to spend any time on it, but it, Paul chose Silas to be his co-worker, and it was there that the two, these two men traveled through Galatia and Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece on Paul's second missionary journey. And Silas played a very substantial role in establishing churches in both Thessalonica and in Corinth. He was a major figure in both those places. Then Timothy's mentioned he joined Paul and Silas as sort of a sort of a junior member. He was a member of the team, but he was a very young man. And Paul really loved Timothy and really took him under his wing. He became a son to him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul called him, My son whom I love. And in Philippians 2.22, he says he, that he was, as a son with, with his father, he has served with me, speaking of Timothy in the work of the gospel. So he was a very beloved young man. At this point in time, he was still learning because he, he had joined them on this missionary journey. 
Um, so Paul and Silas are their main missionaries. Timothy is almost like a, an intern, so to speak, in, in a way, working with them. And the, the, the conjunction of all three names and the frequent use of the first person plural, which, of course, first person plural means we, um, that, that uh, all throughout the letter, that indicates that all three were co-senders of this because they all had a stake in, you know, they were there in helping to start the church and plant the church. And the, the order of the names and then Paul's occasional use of, of the word I instead of we indicate that he was the one who actually composed the letters. And Silas may have been the one actually dict, uh, wrote it down as he dictated and Timothy was probably the one who delivered it. So they were all involved. Another thing about Paul's greeting here by mentioning these three, these other two men, uh, it really gives us a glimpse into Paul's model of team leadership. Paul had a consistent practice of working as part of a team, um, highlighted here by his deliberate mention of Silas and Timothy. Everybody knew Paul was the main guy. He was the apostle. Uh, and he could have just written it and just said, hey, this is from Paul. But he included these other men in this for a reason. He, he had a practice of, of working with other people and, and, and working with teams. And he also had a practice of installing teams as the leadership of the churches that he established. Now, he would have somebody who would be an elder in charge of it, but he'd have a team of leaders working in that church. Because Paul understood one of the great principles of creation. God has put this in. This is a biblical principle. And that is there is great power in unity. There's great power in working together. And you go back even back to the Old Testament. What does scripture say about when they were started building the Tower of Babel? Anybody remember? Said they were building this tower. And, the, and scripture tells us that, that if they succeed in this, nothing will be impossible for them. Tells you there's some power. What, did you, what does it say in the New Testament? If any two or three, what? Agree. So there, there's power in unity. There's power in working together. And, and, and it just, we all know just even from real life that we can do more together than we can do individually. That's just the way it is. We, in the church, we need each other because we all have different gifts. If, if everybody had my gifts, whatever they happen to be, then there would be a lot of things that don't get done. And if everybody had your gifts, then, then there are other things that wouldn't be done. They're just because we're all different. We all have different gifts. And, and, and so we need each other because of that. Uh, otherwise, there's going to be holes in our ministry. And which, by the way, when somebody chooses not to use their gifts to serve in a church, what, that, what happens in that church is it creates a hole. And then sometimes other people step in and try to fill the hole, but they're not gifted in that area, and it's not done as well as it could be, uh, but it's all because somebody is spreading themselves out and trying to function in areas where they're not very good at it. Now, I will say this in addition to that, just kind of a caveat to that. Your primary area of ministry is always in your, the area of your gifting. But your secondary area of ministry is anywhere there's a need. That's what we have to understand. We, we get caught up sometimes, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about it today. It kind of made me chuckle. You know, I don't think in the early church, in Paul's day, I don't think they were doing gift tests, you know. Oh, let's see, what's my gift? Oh, you know, we get caught up in these things. And I think they're helpful. They can be helpful anyway. Uh, I, truth is, uh, the best way to discover your gifts is to try different ministries, is not to take a test. And the reason, reason I say that is because what's the test going to say? It's going to ask you, do you, for example, do you enjoy working with, with children? And you might say, oh, no, no. But you've never tried it. And then you go to do it and you realize, man, I'm really, really, I'm really good with these kids and I'm really enjoying this. You know, that's, that's one example. And so that's the problem with the test because it'll ask you, it'll ask you, do you enjoy this? Or do you find fulfillment in this? But often it's something that you have never really tried, but it just sounds really bad to you. So you'll say, oh no, I wouldn't want to do that. And so until you do it, you don't really know if you're gifted in that area. 
And that's why it's good to try and to get involved and to serve in different things and do different things in a church because in doing that, sometimes you discover a gift that's been hidden, that's been latent and, uh, is, and hiding under the surface and you discover something that's, that you're going to be very useful to the kingdom uh, with and that you're going to find a lot of joy and fulfillment in. And so anyway, that's, that's free. That wasn't even in the notes tonight. So um, uh, uh, we, we talking about being together. We also need each other, not only because we have different gifts, but we need each other because we need accountability. Anybody here uh, honest enough to admit that you need accountability in your life? Yeah, yeah, we all do. Uh, which, let me add another note to that that's not in the notes. Um, nobody can hold you accountable. That's impossible. You have to hold yourself accountable. And the reason I say that is you can even set up an accountability, part, accountability partner. You can say, listen, I'm dealing with this area. I want you to ask me every time you see me how I'm doing in this area. They can do that, but they can't make you tell the truth. And, and you make yourself accountable by telling the truth. You see, that's why nobody can hold you accountable. Nobody can make you accountable uh, because they can't make you be honest about what's really going on inside of you or what, what you're dealing with. Um, and so, but we do need accountability and we need each other for that. Uh, when, when we begin to think that we don't need each other, uh, that's, that's when we open the door to all kinds of problems in our lives. That's when we open the door to all kinds of problems in the church. Uh, people who say, oh, I can, I can serve Jesus. I don't, I don't need the church. They, they don't understand uh, anything about how God has wired us. They don't understand what the church is about. We're going to get into that tonight. The church is not just a human organization that we go to to try to practice religion. This is a God-ordained thing. Um, and, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, so I don't, I don't want to get into that. But, but we open the door to all kinds of problems when we begin to think that we don't need each other. And, and it's not just in the church, but if a pastor begins to think, I don't need the people of the church to accomplish this ministry, well, he's just setting himself up for a big, big mess and a big fall. He's setting himself up for burnout, frankly. Um, and if the people of a church think they don't need each other, the, the truth is, then there are going to be ministries that are unfulfilled. There are going to be people that will slip through the cracks. And, and that church will never reach the potential that they have that God's built in there. Because the church is, is essentially a team with the goal of fulfilling the Great Commission of Christ. God has put us together as a church, as a team, for a purpose. And He expects us to work together as a team to fulfill the Great Commission. Um, the, the truth is, and this seems, sound, sounds odd to people when they first hear it, maybe, but we are all called to ministry and even to some level of leadership in our lives. We're all called to ministry because it, it's not a matter of office or formal structure, but it's a matter of giftedness. God has gifted you in a certain way, and therefore He expects you to use that gift that is your calling to ministry. Um, you, you're, you're not a leader because you have a title. You're a leader because you're functioning in the area where God has gifted you. And, and, and in, its, in its very essence, leadership is influence. Everybody here influences somebody, which means you have some level of leadership. The more people you influence, the greater level of leadership you have. Um, there's a man named Klein Snodgrass. That's quite, quite the name. Uh, but he, he, he observes this. He said, The body of Christ does not have two classes of members, clergy and laity, or two sets of expectations. Everyone has the same task of building up the body, even though the responsibilities vary. In other words, this, in this, I believe this very strongly. Uh, the only difference between me as a pastor and somebody sitting in a congregation is that I have added responsibilities that have been given to me to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, you know, sometimes when we think of the work of a pastor, I'll give you an example. Say somebody is sick, somebody's in the hospital. Well, we, ought, we think, well, the pastor ought to go visit. I should, but not because I'm the pastor, necessarily. I should because I'm a follower of Christ. You see, 
It's, it's our job as followers of Christ to care for one another. It's not just the pastor to care for the people. It's all of us caring for one another. So I do have a responsibility to go. And, and, and maybe in doing that, that's a part of being pastor in the sense that, that I'm also leading people and helping to equip them for ministry. But if I, was, if I wasn't a pastor, I would still, I would still have that same responsibility because we're called to care for one another. We're called to love one another. Um, and, and so, uh, but the, the reality is not one of us has it all together. And not one of us has every gift, gift needed to fulfill the plan God has for Restoration Life Church. But all of us together, He puts us together, I believe, strategically for a very specific purpose. And when each of us is doing our part, when each of us is working in our areas of giftedness, then we can do more under the anointing of the Holy Spirit than any of us could ever possibly imagine. I've seen it happen in churches where they had a ministry and influence that went way beyond the, what, what you would expect them to have with the number of people in the church. But I, it's just amazing what God can do. And it's amazing what can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. That's something to think about. So let's look at the recipients. After identifying the senders, Paul identifies the recipients, and he identifies them as the Church of the Thessalonians. I already mentioned a little bit about how he changed that in other later letters later on, but th this is another unique aspect of this greeting. Normally, Paul addressed his letters to the saints of a particular region or something like that, uh, here, Paul addresses the letter to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, I already talked about the other part, about how he changed later, but I want to talk a little bit because this tells us something here. Uh, because this is the first, this is the earliest letter that we have written, uh, earliest epistle, that um, tells us something by the fact that he's using this word here. The word translated church is the Greek word, excuse me, Greek word ecclesia. Um, and you may even make you think of Ecclesiastes, but it's ecclesia. Ecclesia originally meant, I want you to hear this because this means something. It originally meant a gathering of citizens called out by a herald from their homes into some public place. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't specifically what we would think of as a church per se. In Paul's time, any assembly of people who were called together to meet in a public place, that was an ecclesia. And in, in the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia is used to denote an assembly or a congregation of the people of Israel. And the clear sense in the Old Testament, when that word is used, behind that is that the assembly or the congregation would gather because God has called it together. So knowing this, this is the background from which Paul is drawing as he pictured the church as a gathering of people who have been called to come together to meet with God. It's a, so the idea is Paul is saying, okay, he's, he, and he chose this word. He selected this word. This became the very common word for, for the churches, uh, this e ecclesia. And, and the whole point of it behind it is, is he's, it's a word that's, that's communicating to everybody that understood what the word meant, that we have been called to gather together. We've been called together by God. That's a, that's a pretty, that says a lot more than the word church to us, doesn't it? And, and so it gives meaning to, uh, to gives the, us meeting together uh, as a church a, a, a whole new meaning for us. We're part of the people who have heard the call of God to meet with Him, uh, and we have responded. And that reminds us, that tells us, as I mentioned earlier, that the church is not a human institution. It is a God-ordained institution. When people say, oh, it's just another man-made institution. No, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what we believe biblically. It is a God-ordained institution. We, we're not here. And we're not part of this church merely because we chose to be here and we want to gather together. But we are here in response 
to the call of God. That's the whole idea behind the word that's translated church. It's, and that adds a lot more weight. Sunday morning when we gather together, it's not, well, let's go to church because this is what we do or I want to see my friends. It's that I wake up in the morning and I say, I need to go and gather because God has called us out and he's called us to gather publicly in this community as a witness to the community around us of the grace of Christ. Really adds a lot more to it, doesn't it? And Paul brings to us here the centrality of God for the life of the church. Uh, uh, you know, over the course of the last several decades, uh, a significant shift has occurred in the way many American Christians view the church. We have very, we've gone a long way down the road of consumerism. Uh, we live in a very consumeristic society, and, and, it, and it, it, it has infected the church in a great number of ways. You know, we pick churches based on, you know, what we want. Very, it's very rare, frankly, to find somebody who's attending a church because they said, I prayed about it, and this is where God said to be. Most of the time it's, well, you know, we went here and we didn't like that, and we went there and didn't like that, and we came here and we liked it best. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad they like it, but the, the problem with that is, what, what happens when we do something you don't like? And, and this is why you end up with church hoppers who go, and we even use a, a consumeristic word, who go what? Church shopping. And, and so we have changed that. And so now worship now gets confused with entertainment. Um, and there's nothing wrong, and don't misunderstand me, there's nothing wrong with worship and the music being good with it being something we enjoy. Uh, but the problem is sometimes we focus more on the enjoying the music than we do the worshiping God part. And, and being good and, and being godly uh, is confused with feeling good. I mean, like, well, you know, I felt the presence of God. How do you know God moved this? You say, God really moved in church this morning. How do you know? Man, it just felt so good. Well, it may feel good, but that's, that's, you know, that's really not a barometer for whether God moved or how much he did. Because, uh, listen, I have been in services. I've had situations where, where it was not an emotional moment for, for me, but God did something very significant in my life, very powerful. So, so you know, we, we get these things. Faithfulness is confused with being successful. Or blessed. Instead of, instead of looking for faithfulness, we look for success. We look for blessing. And, and more and more and more people uh, are viewing church in terms of what it can do for us, what it can do for me. That's the consumeristic mindset. And over the course of, of a century or so, substantial segments of American culture, what has happened, and this is the natural recourse of this, is that, is that many, uh, subst at least substantial segments of the American culture have shifted away from a God-centered perspective on reality to a human-centered one. And, and, and again, that has infiltrated the church in great ways. I mean, if you look at a lot of the new worship, worship songs, there's some great ones. Don't, I'm not saying every new song is bad. That's not what I'm saying. But I want you to pay attention to the words of a worship song and see because very often the song focuses more on me and what he does for me and how he makes me feel instead of focusing on him and how great and awesome he is. And, and you'll see, you'll see that it's, and it's a subtle thing, but it's something we have to be aware of because it's easy, easy, easy in our culture to go from a God centered perspective to a, human-centered one. And, and, and when viewed from a man-centered perspective, the church becomes just another human organization created by human beings to meet human needs. And it may differ in style from other groups, but it's not any different in substance. It's merely another form of social organ organization by which human beings seek to, seek to bring order and structure to their lives and or meet personal needs. And, and if that's the case, then it's no real surprise 
that many people view the church primarily in terms of what it can do for them. But over and against this tendency stands the opening verse of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians with its resounding emphasis on God and Jesus Christ, because he said, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds us that the church, whether it's in Thessalonica or elsewhere, is only, it only exists in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church does not exist and certainly has no life apart from God and apart from His saving work in Christ. This means that the church is not just another social organization. It's, it's nothing less than the people of God called together by Him for His worship and for His glory. And, and, and it is commissioned to spread the gospel, the, the good news of God about, his, about Jesus. It, it, is, it is God, as we're we've bringing it, trying to bring out here, it is God who calls humans to follow, worship, and serve Him. It's not vice versa. It's not we as human beings coming together so that God can do what we want Him to do. God does not exist for the sake of the church. Rather, the church exists for the praise and glory of God. Grasping this point will fundamentally change the way we think about church if, if we really get this. Um, we will think of the worship service, for example, less and less and less in terms of what it does for us and more and more and more as an opportunity for us to glorify, praise, and worship God. We'll consider the ministries of the church less and less and less as a means of meeting our own needs and more and more as opportunities to serve others as disciples and servants of Jesus Christ. We'll begin... Uh, we will begin to we will view gathering together with other believers for worship less and less as an intrusion on our weekend. Oh, I got to do it again, and more and more as an opportunity to declare, even by the way we spend our time, our allegiance to the one uh, true God. The, the The life of the church begins in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and that brings us actually to that phrase where he says, not only in God the Father but in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's an important phrase there because every word of this title is crucial to our relationship with God. First of all, Jesus is His name. I mean, that's the English pronunciation of it. Uh, Yeshua would be His Jewish name, but we, we say Jesus. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different pronunciation in different language, but that's His name. What, the, what does that mean? It means we follow a real person who was born, who lived, who died on a cross, who rose, rose from the dead. We can actually go and visit Nazareth. We can go to Capernaum where he walked. We can go to Jericho where we read stories about where he was. We can, we can visit Jerusalem. We can go to Bethlehem. We can actually go and walk the same places. He was a real person. We can walk along the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he walked. So, so this name, having this name speaks of his humanity. It reminds us that he was tempted in every way that we are. And it reminds us that he is that he truly understands what we're going through. He knows what it's like to be a human. We cannot look at, at God and say, you don't get it. You don't understand how hard this is. Because, yes, he does. He does. Second, Christ. A lot of people don't know this. Christ is not like his middle name. That's his title. That's his title, the, the, the Greek word Christos. That's the Greek word uh, that's translated Christ, but that's the Greek word that's used for the Hebrew word Mashiach. Does anybody have any idea what that means? There you go. Sounds just like it, doesn't it? That, and that refers to the promised anointed one that was going to be sent by God for the redemption of Israel. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus is the Messiah sent by God to redeem not only Israel, but also everyone who call on him. And by using his title, when we say Jesus Christ, 
And a lot of people don't only say that when it's a swear word to them, but by using his title, we're recognizing that he is the one who was sent by God to redeem mankind. And in the same way that Christ is the title designated by God, we say the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord is the title that we, at least for the time being, we may choose to give him. To call him Lord is to give him absolute authority of one's life. The word translated Lord indicates a relationship of total authority that was chosen by the subject. In other words, he does not force his authority on us. He allows us to choose to follow him. And I will say that that's true for now. But there will come a day, as we're told in Philippians, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there will come a day when it won't be voluntary to declare his lordship. The difference is when we do it voluntarily now, this is, one of the, this is the pathway to salvation. If we're waiting until we're forced to do it, the time for salvation will be passed. But, but all of this is because of His grace, which leads us to the final statement made by Paul in the greeting. He said, grace and peace to you. Now, for us, that's a simple statement. Sounds like it doesn't have that much meaning, but we have to think about this, what he is saying. It's only through the grace of God that we're even part of this church, that we're even part of, of the ecclesia. It's not because we're good people. It's not because we, we have so much to offer to God that he just couldn't help but, but select us and bring us in. He's lucky to have me, you know. It's, it's simply because of God's grace that we are who we are. It's all him. It's all his favor. He looked down at us and he said, I really love them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shower my favor on them for no reason other than that's who he is. Uh, it, it's, it's simply God's grace that we are who we are. Grace, as we know, is unmerited favor, favor that we don't deserve. But you know what? It's even more than that. Grace is great, God's grace, we're told, in Scripture in the New Testament. I didn't look it up, but to, I can't give you the exact reference, but we're told that it's His grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's also God's grace that works in us uh, to, to both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. In other words, it's God's grace that's work, that works in us to give us the desire to do what's right and the ability to do it. The grace of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the Bible promises, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You know, I'm really glad that the Scripture doesn't say, He began a good work in you, so you better be faithful to complete it. Because then it all be on me, trying to figure out what I have to do. But it said, He who began the good work, He's going to get it done. That's His grace. It's only through God's grace that we can experience peace. There's a reason why Paul, and, and really, in the, in the, if you were to be very strict in the translation, he would say, God's grace to you and peace. Almost added on later. Because it's only when we experience His grace that we find His peace. Um, and, and we don't always understand peace. We, peace to the world, peace means it's an absence of conflict. But that's not what biblical, the biblical concept of peace really means. The word peace, uh, the most common word used for peace, it literally means to be, to be set at one. Uh, and the idea is that there's something that has been separated, that has been put back together. That's what, that's what peace is. Uh, it's literally being made one with God again, that our sin separated us from Him. And, and, and because of that sin, this gap existed, and, and, and that sin is bridged by the grace that we find at the cross, and we are reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ, and we are, we are, we are reunited with God 
which, from whom we have been separated by our sin. We're also, we also know that it's a peace that passes understanding. Sometimes, I mean, very often, I should say, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've had those times in your life, as I have, where even I couldn't understand why I had peace. You ever had those moments where you looked at everything going on and, and you think to yourself, wow, you know, I should be, you know, upset or falling apart or something here, but I just have this settled peace. I just know God's got this. Because, see, we have, we have peace in spite of circumstances. See, that's what human understanding doesn't get. Because for human, in human understanding, peace comes because everything is where, where we want it to be. But this God-given peace that passes human understanding comes in spite of circumstances. When you have no business being at peace, you have it because, first of all, we know God's in control. And even, even if the worst happens in this life, even if I lose my life, it's still okay because he's got me in the, in the palm of his hand, not just for this lifetime, but for, for eternity. So it gives me peace. And, and we know that our lives are in his hands. And, and not only that, we're in his hands and nothing can separate us from his love. So no matter what happens, we have peace. So my prayer is that we would grow in understanding of His grace. And as we do, we would have peace. Uh, many letters. So that's the, that's the first initial greeting. Now, many letters back in Paul's day would then follow the greeting uh, with a word of encouragement or something like that. It was usually very kind of benign, real generic. And Paul typically did the same thing. In all of his letters, actually, most of his letters, what he does after he greets, greets them, he usually says some word of thanks over the congregation. There is one exception. Galatians is the exception because he was very frustrated with the Galatians. Uh, maybe one time we'll do a study on Galatians, but he, had, he, he just had, had enough with Galatians because they had started turning their back on grace and started turning to try to earn their salvation and that's where, I mean, one of the famous verses in the Bible where he says, you foolish Galatians. You know, I mean, you can, you can read his frustration through that. But in Galatians, he greeted them and he didn't say, I thank God for you or anything that he just dived right into a reprimand right off the bat. He's like, Paul to the Galatians, the believers in Galatia. What are you doing? You a bunch of idiots. You know, kind of that's kind of not a, that's a very loose paraphrase, but that's kind of what's happening. That, but here he does go into thanksgiving. So let's read it. Verses two and three. We always thank God for all of you and continuously mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul told the Thessalonians this young. A church that's facing persecution because remember they had a riot that's why Paul had to leave and now they're the the population there in Thessalonica is, is persecuting this young church and he tells them that he and all of his other missionaries that are working with him always thank God for all of them and then he said and he and that they prayed for them constantly that tells me Paul now Paul was a very gifted man a brilliant man brilliant mind I mean, some of, the, some of the sentences he wrote were, were deeper and longer than, than anything I could write in a lifetime. Uh, but, but you know what? Paul was not depending on his great skills or his gifts or his teaching ability to, to carry these young believers through. He, didn't, he wasn't saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm a really good teacher. They, I, I told them what they need to know. They'll be fine. No, Paul was praying. He was trusting God to guide and to protect these young believers. He knew that he was inadequate on his own. And, and, and we know Paul spent much time traveling and preaching, but apparently he spent a lot of time on his knees praying for, for believers and for churches. I'm going to just read to you some of these that he wrote in different churches. To, to, you'll get a sense of the heart of Paul. 2 Corinthians 13, 7. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test 
stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. Ephesians 1.17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. What a great prayer. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. This is, I, this is, I love this one. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That's a great prayer already. But then he goes on. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Oh, I love that verse that, that he's praying that they would have the ability with the Lord's help just to see how massive God's love is for, for, for his people. And then verse 19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, filled to the measure of, of all the fullness of God. Philippians 1.4, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. Philippians 1.9 through 11, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1.9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Philemon, verse 6, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. I love those prayers. In fact, you know what? In, in getting this ready and reading those prayers, I've made it, I've made it a, a per, I've purposed in my heart that this is how, as your pastor, I'm going to be praying for you. These are so powerful. But you know what? Paul also realized he needed prayer. He requested that the believers pray for him. Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let me tell you, I covet you to pray that prayer for me. Colossians 4.3, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray for us, pray for our church. God, open the, uh, the, the, a door for the message of the gospel in this community. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. These are great prayers. We should be praying for one another. Well, Paul goes on and he commends, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here tonight on these, these and I, I think we're going to be doing good on time. But Paul commended these young Christians for three things. He commended them for their work, for their labor, and for their endurance. Uh, we often um, regard faith, love, and hope as invisible virtues, as, as qualities of the heart that are invisible to those around us. However, in Paul's mind, and what he's saying here, in his mind, faith results in work. Love manifested itself in labor, and hope could be seen in the perseverance of those in whom it dwelt. And, and these are the three foundational uh, elements of Christian character First um, Corinthians 13, 13. We all know that's the love chapter. He says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We know, we know that. 
Faith is the assurance that God has acted in Christ to save his people. Love is the present expression of the restored relationship between God and his people. And hope is the confidence that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion and and that Christ is returning. And so he says these three things. The first thing he said, the first phrase, he said, he commended them for their work produced by faith. The Thessalonians work had been produced by faith. Paul made it clear over and over again in the New Testament that believers are saved by faith alone. But he also made it clear that faith should produce good works in the life of each believer. Some some people think that James and Paul were like at odds because James says, uh, you know, that faith without works is dead. But they think that Paul said, no, it's that works is, is, is you know, that you that works are meaningless, but Paul never said that. He just said works are meaningless when it comes to salvation. And James agrees with that. But both of them say, when you get saved, it should change the way you act. It will produce work, works in you. So believers do not work in order to get saved. There's no work we can do to be saved. But we work because we are saved. Salvation is not the result of anything that we do, but our works for the kingdom of God are a result of our salvation. This is what we see Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We, 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 you often hear 8 and 9, but we, we don't oft, always hear verse 10 with it. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, So by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. We know that part. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. That's salvation. Why? To do good works. You see there, Paul Paul is very clearly saying, you are not saved by any good works. You're only saved by faith in Christ. But... You are saved to do good works. It's a result of it. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a mouthful there I don't have time to get into. James 2.18. We'll see how these two are very similar. They, They go hand in hand or hand in glove, you could say. James said, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. That's exactly what Paul is saying. If you have faith, it's going to show up in your deeds and how what you do. Faith, and that faith is not meant to be practiced in a vacuum. Uh, believers are to do good works for the glory of God, which means they're not always, I mean, that, that they're going to be visible. It's what Jesus said, uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. You know, right there, if I were asked most people to say, who is the light of the world? Most of us would say, Jesus, and, and we would be right. But we also forget what he said to us. He said, you are the light of the world. Now, we're, we're more like the moon. He's like the sun. You know, the sun produces its own light. The moon doesn't produce any light. It just reflects it. So we're like that. That's, that's the source of our light. But we're supposed to let a light shine in the darkness of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine where? Before others. What is, what is your light? It's your good works. He's saying, let people see the fruit of your salvation. Let them see how you live. Let people know when, when you, you know, when you're serving, when you're giving a cup of cold water, let them know why you're doing it. You know, I, 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 there've been times of, you know, I, I don't give out, I don't give out cash to people on the street. You know, somebody comes up and says, I'm hungry. Can you, you got any cash to spare? I don't give, I don't carry cash for that reason. That's one of the reasons I don't. The other reason is because when I carry cash, I spend it and don't know where it went. Uh, but, but when they come up and say that, 
usually if, if we're someplace where I can do it, I'll say, I don't have any cash, but if you're hungry, let's, let's go in here, this restaurant, McDonald's, whatever it is, you can order anything off the menu, I'll pay for it. I, I got a debit card, I can do that. Most of the time they'll do that if they're hungry. If they, if they don't want that, then I know they didn't want the money for food in the first place. But, but here's one of the things I do. Uh, because I read this, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm supposed to let my light shine before men. And that, that means, that's not, it's for me to reflect the light. So it's, I have to let them see that the light that I'm shining is not about me. I have to somehow let them know. So I'll buy them a food and I'll tell them, I say, listen, I want you to know the reason I'm getting you this food is not because I'm a nice guy. It's because Jesus has changed my life and he loves me. He loves you, and He wants me to let you know he, that He loves you. That's why I bought you this food. Usually that's as far as it goes. Sometimes they have something else to say. But, but, but that's what, is, what I believe it's talking about, letting your good deeds shine, letting your light shine, not for your glory, but for His. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. Faith is not something to be practiced only in the church and only around other believers. It is something that's supposed to be lived out on a daily basis in front of an unbelieving world. We're supposed to be reflecting the light of Jesus and everything that we do, the good works that we do, we should always be redirecting that to Christ and letting them see and so that they know Hey, and in fact, the truth is when I tell them I'm not doing this because I'm a nice guy, I often tell them I'm not a nice guy. I've done a lot of bad things in my life. So it's not that. It's that I have found grace. I found Jesus. He loves me. He loves you. So God has given each of us these gifts and abilities and talents that he intends for us to use to build his kingdom. And, and the, the, the thing we have to remember when it comes to this work prompted by our faith is to remember that God has a work for you to do. Now the character of that work will be different for every believer because we're all we are wired differently, we have different personalities, we have different gifts, we have different abilities, we have different funding, you know? I mean, I'm not going to be able to go buy a car for somebody but somebody else might be able to do that, you know? So it's going to, the, the character of the work is going to be different for every believer, but the motivation is going to be the same. The motivation of faith in Christ and the desire to bring more people to saving faith are the same for every believer. To, to do work produced by faith does not mean that new believers have to leave their jobs and become full-time Christian workers. When I say that we're all called to ministry and God has a work for you to do. It doesn't mean that he's called you to be a pastor necessarily or to stand up front and preach or to quit your job and do, the, do something full time. Uh, in, in fact, I think that's the opposite of what he wants because he plants us where we are for a reason. He's got you working where you work for a reason. He wants you to be a missionary there in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the, in the, the store where you shop, everywhere you go. He, he has a, a purpose for you in that. And, and, and believers can work for the kingdom in almost any vocation. Uh, as they rub sh shoulders with non-believers, they can have a positive impact for Christ. And it's their faith that prompts their work for Him in their present vocation. Second thing was, and I didn't mean to take so much time on that one. Second one was, He commended them for their labor prompted by love because of their love believers were willing to labor now that greek word translated labor is kopos and it means toil and hardship what that tells us it means that out of love they have labored to the point of weariness and, and, of course, the love used speaking of there, it's the Greek word agape. We all know, we all know that one, this self-sacrificing love. And that's the word that the early church adopted to describe the love of, that God has for people. In fact, the truth is, before the church, it was a rarely used word. 
but it became very common in the church because it described the love of God. And it is the kind of love demonstrated at the cross where Jesus gave his body as a sacrifice motivated by love. That's self-giving, self-sacrificing, agape love. And the believers were willing to give of themselves, even if it meant hardships, in service to other people. And, and only God's kind of love could prompt that kind of a willing labor. Uh, you know, a lot of believers today are just, they're not motivated to give to the point of hardship. I, I've known a lot of Christians who are willing to serve God as long as it's comfortable and easy. You know what I'm talking about? But we have to cultivate a willingness to give ourselves up for the sake of others. That does not come easily, at least not for me. I don't know if there's anybody else in this room that comes easily for. If so, you're a lot more like Christ than I am is all I can say. But we have to be cultivate that willingness and we have to say, Jesus, make me a little more like you. I really think that becoming more Christ-like really boils down to becoming more selfless. And, and when I measure myself that way, I usually don't come out on the good end of the stick very often because I realize how far I have to go. You know what I'm saying? But we got to be willing to serve the way Christ served. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, we don't give our lives as a ransom for many, but we're called to give our lives so they can know Christ. Then the final one, and I need to hurry, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Thessalonians' endurance had been inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, there's a real connection between endurance or perseverance and hope. Because as long as you have hope, you can persevere. The, the word translated endurance refers not to just passive acceptance, or you're like, Okay, I'll just, I'll somehow hang on. But it refers to a strong fortitude in the face of opposition or difficulty. It's a strength, standing strong in the middle of it. Enduring persecution is one, it's one of the main themes of this first chapter. And Paul's readers had remained faithful even though they had faced serious opposition and persecution from the citizens of Thessalonica. And what was the reason for their strength? Paul says it was hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that hope where he talked about that most likely refers to the return of Christ or, or the rapture. We'll get into that in another week. But, but, but I want to talk about that word hope because sometimes we don't get it. In our culture, when we say, I hope something happens, it's because we think, I don't know if it will or not, but I, I'm crossing my fingers, I'm hoping so. That's not the hope that the Bible talks about. The word translated hope refers to a confident expectation. Let me give you an example of this. I've used this example before, but I think it really is, gives us a good picture. Uh, just imagine in your, imagine in your mind a, a young child whose daddy goes to work every single day. And every day the dad comes home at exactly the same time every single day. And even though that child can't tell time, he knows when it's about time. Or maybe it's not a child, maybe it's a dog, you know, a pet in the house. They do that at the same thing a lot of times. Uh, but, but, but that child or that pet will, will sit there on the sofa or on the chair looking out the window because they know it's about time for, for daddy to get home. And, and they're not sitting there thinking, I don't know if he will or not. I hope so. I, I hope he shows up tonight. No, no. They're sitting there with a very a confident expectation. I know daddy's coming. I know he's coming. I don't know when because I can't tell time yet, but I know he's coming. And they'll sit there with this confidence waiting for this to happen. You see, this hope that he talks about is not a vague desire that Jesus will return someday, but it is a certainty that believers have in their hearts where they look forward uh, to his return during their lives on this earth. In other words, we are so sure of it happening that we, it gives birth to perseverance in spite of circumstances. 
Hebrews 12.1 talks about perseverance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, which that's talking about Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, this cloud of witnesses is all of those who have gone before, who have had faith in God. So therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The, the reason we're able to persevere in the race, have you ever, have anybody ever done any kind of long distance running or anything like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking around like, I don't think this is a running crowd. I'm not, listen, I'm an avid non-runner. You know, if you see me running, call 911. Something is chasing me. It's bad. It's a bad situation if I'm running. But, but I know enough about it. I did run a little bit when I was younger. Is that, you know, when you get toward the end of the run, there are times when you hit that, the hill. You know, and you're, you're already exhausted and you hit that hill and you're like, I don't know if I can make this. It's that moment when you hit the hill in life and you, don't, you know, just don't know if you have the strength. What gives you the strength is remembering the hope we have in Christ. This confident expectation. Jesus is with me. Jesus is, is going to see me through this. Jesus has a plan for my life. Jesus is coming. Therefore, I can persevere. In fact, Hebrews 12, when you, you read on, the reason it gives us for the perseverance is it says, look to the author of our faith. Because Jesus endured the cross. Therefore, you can persevere through anything. It's the hope that we have. It's the hope we have. Faith, hope, and love are anchors for the Christian life. Um, and they should be seen in, in, in all believers. Too often a believer claims to have faith in Jesus as Lord, but yet they're not motivated to work in the kingdom to spread the gospel. Too often a believer claims to have hope in Jesus Christ as, 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 as the one in control of his or her life, but when faced with difficulty and disappointment here, she doesn't endure in the faith and turns away from God. Too often a believer who claims to love Jesus Christ, but then when serving in Christ's king, kingdom becomes labor and becomes difficult, they back off. But faith, hope, and love must result in work, labor, and perseverance. And that will, that will guide us through, that will keep us moving, showing us what to do, showing us how to do it. So I think the question that we all have to ask ourselves is how is faith, hope, and love showing up in my life? Is it just something I have internally or is it giving birth to work, labor, and endurance? That's the challenge for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and I thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith and hope and love. And I pray, God, that, that uh, you would help us, Lord God, to realize that these things, while they are intangible, they give birth to very tangible things. And Lord, that our faith would be, would be real and consistent, that it would give birth to works that glorify you. And that our love for you and for other people would be so powerful that it would lead us to, to labor on behalf of others, even when, it's, even when it's weariness on our part. And God, that the hope that we have in you would be so strong that it causes us to persevere no matter what comes our way, because we know we are in the hands of our Savior. In Jesus, we know you are coming back. And we give you thanks in all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.